Much of IDS's gender work over the past few years has looked at the rights for domestic workers in various contexts, including balancing unpaid care work and paid work. But little has been written about those workers who work for development agencies in expat contexts, for organisations such as the United Nations, Oxfam, Save the Children or World Vision. In this episode of the Ideas Between the Lines podcast, Ideas Research Fellow Deepta Chopra interviews author Dinah Hannaford, whose latest book, Aid and the Help, International Development and the Transnational Extraction of Care, looks at this issue of domestic workers and their relationships with development agencies. This opens the opportunity to assess the multiple ways that the giving industry of development can be an extractive industry as well. This discussion provides a unique angle to examining the paid care work that domestic workers do and highlights how this paid care work is devalued, even by aid workers who work in development organisations, and how this is linked to the devaluation of care as work. Thank you very much for joining us for this uh, Between the Lines podcast. Uh, my name is Deepta Chopra. I'm a research fellow at the Institute of Development Studies, and my focus is mainly on uh, women's uh, unpaid care work and also um, their paid care work and how this is linked very deeply to their um, economic, social and political empowerment. I have the pleasure of um, introducing uh, Dr. Diana Hannaford. Uh, Diana is an Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Houston, and she has uh, written a book called Aid and the Help, International Development and the Transnational Extraction of care. Um, what I found very striking about this book and why we thought that this would be a really good idea to, to, to have a conversation about this is, is, is how Diana inverts the development industry's gaze on themselves as uh, not just um, you know, givers of, of help, but also as, as extractors of, uh, of care, uh, which they use to reproduce and maintain their class status and prestige. Uh, often to ensure that they are upwardly, upwardly mobile. Uh, however, on the other hand, the care workers are still stuck in uh, temporary um, uh, cycles of support and financial gain. And uh, Diana calls attention to this interesting dynamic. Um, uh, Diana, um, would you introduce yourself and also tell us a little bit more about the work? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Um, so I am, as you say, um, a cultural anthropologist at the University of Houston, and my work has, the, the theme of my work has been the political economy of intimate life. So how can we think about the ways that larger political and economic structures impact intimate life, but also how intimate life itself shapes these bigger forces of political and economic um, structures. So the, my first book was about transnational marriages. I was interested in the migration of Senegalese, Senegalese men primarily to Europe and the families that they left behind or that they created back in Senegal from abroad and how these dynamics helped us to understand a lot about globalization, about global labor movements and about the way that marriage and ideas of gender were changing both in Senegal and globally and things like that. So I'm, I've always kind of thought about the personal relationship as a prism to look at all these other kinds of forces. So in this project, even though most of research about Senegal and migration is about the Senegalese who are migrating out, I wanted to think about the people who are coming to Senegal who I label as economic migrants, although expats are generally not thought of as economic migrants or not treated as such. I think it's really interesting to think about what are they doing there? How are they living there? How are they making their own fortunes and their own futures um, through this kind of migration? So I wanted to think especially about the way that expats who are working in the development industry are interacting with those around them. And that came out of my own work in development um, in between, before I became an anthropologist, and also my connections with both expat aid workers, but also domestic workers in Senegal who worked for European and American families, especially. So all of those questions led me to think about that relationship as a way to look at the development industry itself. 
Great, thanks, Diana. And it's really interesting that um, you've kind of, like as I said, inverted gaze a little bit. Um, uh, tell us, uh, your, so your research has been, you said, primarily in Senegal, um, and uh, you know, and, and you you spoke with both expat families who were from uh, Europe and America, but also domestic workers. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about the scale of your um, kind of um, research methodology a little bit, you know, how many people and, you know, what, what was the nature of your engagement with, with that? Did you use interviews? What, what did you do? Yeah, sure. So I'm an ethnographic researcher. So the there is a core of 36 long form ethnographic interviews that make up the bulk of um, the quotes and the case studies that I draw from in the text. But also I've been living and working in Senegal on and off for about 20 years and um, both in expat Senegal and observing these dynamics and participating in them. One of my closest friends and roommates was a domestic worker for an American family. Um, and then I worked in um, an NGO, a local NGO for a couple of years as well. And so I've had this kind of ongoing participant observation in these in this dynamic for a long time. I also, um, in addition to those core 36 interviews, which are with both expat aid workers and with domestic workers, I also, in addition to that, was interviewing people who work in and around development in Senegal, including Senegalese development workers. Um, I was talking to people who had been in the development industry and then were back at home, who had lived in the field but were back in their home countries, um, and other kinds of domestic workers who worked for other employers that weren't necessarily um, expat aid workers too. So in addition to that, hands-on kind of more traditional ethnographic fieldwork, I was also doing digital ethnography. So that meant being in and around expat aid worker spaces um, and expats, more general expat spaces too online. Um, this meant everything from newsletters that circulated among certain com communities within Senegal to Facebook groups of aid workers globally or specific Facebook groups in Senegal as well and following how these dynamics of the dynamics between aid workers and the domestic workers were talked about, were discussed, were advertised, right? There are a lot of, a whole chapter of the book talks about the classified ads that are posted um, offering the services of domestic workers to other expat aid workers. So all of that I used as kind of convergent data to, to think about and um, work through some of the questions that I had about these dynamics. Great. Um, so what so while you were doing your research, I mean, you obviously had had a little bit of an idea of, you know, what, you know, like trying to talk to these um, the expats, um, having conversations with uh, with the care workers. Um, tell me what what surprised you the most during during your research. So it's funny because I went into the study hoping that I was going to have a book about how these domestic workers were impacting the aid industry in terms of sharing information. So the so many of these jobs of aid workers are really transient. They come for three-year posts and then they move on to the next country. You know, you're three years in Myanmar and then you're in the Philippines and then you're in Tanzania, right? So they don't have a lot of time to acquire specific local knowledge. And my idea going in was that I was going to uncover this kind of source of, of, of cultural knowledge that from the people, local people who are living and interacting in their own homes, right? And I, I started out asking a lot of questions, both of domestic workers and of aid workers about, do you ever, you know, use, a, use your domestic workers as a shorthand to figure out, oh, I'm working on this question about gender and, um, you know, microfinance, how would you use this money? Or in your village where you came from, a lot of the domestic workers are rural to urban migrants. In the, your village, do you see any issues? Why wouldn't this work? Or why do people, even just basic things about why do people have these scars by their eyes? And what does it mean that so-and-so, right? All these kinds of questions. And I found none of that was happening. And that itself was a really interesting mm. result, right? That was interesting data in itself that the domestic workers by and large had no idea what projects their bosses were working on, didn't know necessarily which organization their bosses worked for, whether they worked in industry or for the embassy or for an aid organization. Um, many of them didn't care, right? Didn't see it as relevant at all to their lives. Um, and then on the flip side, the expat aid workers thought, oh no, it, it never occurred to me, right? To ask those questions. And I think that revealed to me a couple of things. One, that they 
their jobs actually weren't dependent on them having any culturally specific knowledge. And they often express very little interest, right, in, in really mining, you know, the way an anthropologist would in a new place for all of its cultural secrets and dynamics and things like that, that they're the work of their jobs was often very peripheral to any of that, and that there were local staff who they assumed would handle all that while they did their very technical jobs, right? And never the twain shall meet, kind of. It, it, was, a, it was a really interesting surprise, and it, it pivoted in many ways the focus of my research to thinking about who are these aid workers why are they there and what you know why do they have to be there to do these jobs and what are they gaining from being there as well um and then how do also the domestic workers think about this revolving door of people who are there ostensibly with the mission of the betterment of their country the development of their country and yet it seems to offer so little change in their lives except for this very specific relationship of giving them employment to wash their floors or cut their flowers right so that that really um helped shape the focus of the book in in a way that surprised me that is that is very interesting that you you know you go in with an, one assumption and then you know it completely blows blows out of the water i just wanted to follow up a little bit about what you said about you know like um senegalese um aid workers uh, versus expat aid workers and you know and i and i wonder whether you also uncovered and i mean i don't uh, you know it's it's not in the book but just just out of interest you know whether whether you uncovered any sort of interesting dynamics between uh between local staff and expat staff uh you know not just in terms of um you know not not just in terms of their careers and you know moving on but also in terms of the the the, the care workers that they used i mean was there any difference between uh, you know, uh, how local uh, aid workers employed um, uh, care staff versus expats employing care staff and, and, and what the dilemmas that the expats faced uh, not the same for these uh, Senegalese um, development aid workers. Yeah, thanks for that question. I think one of the nice um, developments, if I can use that word, in recent years in, in development literature is that there has been a renewed focus on local aid workers and the dynamics within the aid industry of how, um, you know, there's a lot of calls for localization or decolonization that are um, emphasizing the importance of local hires in, de in development work and really shining a light on the inequity within the industry and the way that that um, the glass ceiling for local workers is very hard to break. So I will I would point readers, there's a lot of great research coming out about about that. And and though that wasn't the focus of my study, um, certainly I was really interested in those in the social dynamics in the office between again as as I contend in the book and and um, the most intimate relationships often that expat aid workers have with local people are with their domestic staff not with their coworkers and I found that uh, um, often this is because the coworkers who have maybe been in the office for many years know that these people are on their way out right and that getting invested doesn't yield results as they're about to leave right um also in senegal in particular it was very rare that anyone an expat would be trained in the local lingua franca which is wolof that most often if they had any language training at all um then it was in french and so even if they wanted to overhear what their coworkers were saying to one another what their local coworkers were saying to another they couldn't right and so they, it, it created this kind of barrier and it's funny because i had a um an expat aid worker i talked to who had been posted in afghanistan in a compound like you know really locked down kind of job and where and she stated one of the most frustrating things about that was that she couldn't go to her coworkers' houses for dinner or something like that. There was just no opportunity for that because of the strict security rules. And I asked her after three years in Senegal, had she been to any of her Senegalese coworkers' houses for dinner? And she said no. <laughs> right. So clearly, like there are other kinds of barriers um, in from integrating with local staff or and um, even socializing in a meaningful um, way, which is, again, is really interesting when we think about what are these structures in place that keep local people from attaining mm. certain kinds of jobs. Mm. But in terms of domestic work, yeah, the um, in Senegal, as you said, in, in a lot of the developing world, it's very mundane to have domestic workers. And certainly all the professionals who worked in the aid industry would have some kind of domestic work 
even if it's just um, a laundress employed in their household, but often a bun, a maid um, as well. And so the expats didn't look to their local colleagues for cues about how to treat um, pay or hire and fire their domestic workers. They looked to other expats. Mm. It was really seen that there were there two different cultures of how to handle this. There was the expat culture, which really, I would say, expat, Western expat culture of how to hire. And sometimes in Senegal, um, East Asian and South Asian would be considered in that kind of mm. West, Western expat and certainly South American, Latin American. But um, African hiring practices were much more likely to be similar between expat Africans and local professionals. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the expat aid workers that I talked to her from um, Europe and the US or Latin America were looking to other expats to understand what the dynamics were, what the rules, unwritten rules were, and how they should negotiate that. And I found that really interesting. Mm. It's kind of an um, a universally accepted, both among the domestic workers I talked to and the aid workers, that working for an expat is better conditions, better pay, yeah, more more flexible and fewer hours than working for a local family, less exploitative. That's how the domestic workers felt about it, and certainly that's how the aid workers understood it as well. And that was part of their justification, or you know, um, psychological comfort <laughs> with employing a kind of labor they wouldn't necessarily employ at home was that they they were eager to tell me and were and were very certain that it was a better mm -hmm. job than mm. local people offered to domestic workers. Mm -hmm. And of course, and then that that is a very well-known fact across the world that, uh, you know, that working for um, uh, expat workers or even renting houses out to expat workers gets better better rates than uh, than hiring to 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 local local uh, professionals, of course. Uh, but I mean, I I think what I wanted to dig a little bit deeper into was about uh, you know about these you know the Senegalese uh, aid workers and their mm -hmm. own uh, practices. Did they feel the same sort of dilemma of like you know the fact that they were from a different class or that they were coming in to kind of like you know better and so the, those strategies of negotiation that you talk about in terms of saying oh you know there, there's some sort of patronage there's some sort of uh you know um uh, construction of boundaries uh hmm. between them and and the local staff i'm i'm just i'm just interested in the in the senegalese aid aid workers and whether they faced similar or different um challenges and the reason why i ask is also because i mean my larger question this uh, you know brings brings us to kind of thinking about uh, uh people of color who are mm -hmm. expats so mm -hmm. not white expats but people of color who mm -hmm. are expats in other countries and whether they face those same dilemmas of like because mm -hmm. they are for example you know they might be a an, an indian working in in dhaka or a uh, or a Malaysian working in, uh, you know, in in Nairobi, and you know, what is, uh, you know, what what are the sorts of, you know, because, and I, and I, the reason why I ask is because in most of the global South, people employ uh, domestic workers, so in their own countries they would have employed domestic workers anyway. So then, what happens when they move to another country? Do do they face those same dilemmas? So it's kind of like a little bit of a, uh, you know, interesting angle to kind of go in from not the expat workers but the the, the local or the Senegalese aid workers or, or people of color. Yeah so I mean one of the things I talk about in the book too is that my um, the people that I spoke to aid workers I spoke to who were as you said from from a post-colonial country we can say um, who were in Senegal had had fewer qualms about the ethical implications of hiring domestic labor. Um, mm -hmm. They it was a context they were used to in their home country, a professional, this is what a professional person did, right? This is what everyone did. And it didn't seem to be some a new dynamic that they had to wrap their heads around in new ways. It didn't seem to be antithetical to their job or their role in the country. It just was a non-issue in the same way that, um, you know, in the same way that cooking the vegetables the way you cook them at home would be something that you would do without thinking abroad. Um, and also they found, I mean, the ones that I talked to, they were they they thought it was funny that I really wanted to study this dynamic. And they had noticed that their their Western co coworkers had more issues around this, that they didn't, mm. you know, they they were 
amused, bemused and amused by that, but didn't, it didn't resonate with them um, personally. And then, you know, the low, the Senegalese aid workers um, also didn't feel any kind of paradox in their work and development and their hiring of domestic labor. To them, that that would be a weird question. And in fact, when I was speaking with um, an, an employee of the IOM, of the International Organization of Migration, who's specialized on human rights abuses of domestic workers globally, when I asked her about, um, her, first I asked her about her expat colleagues and whether they had formal contracts and what they paid their servants, she had no idea. She said, it would never occur to me to ask them, that's private. Yeah, right? which is you know how this exploitation happens, right? That that she's her work is fighting against. Um, and then when I asked her, she said she said I don't pay a minimum wage. I like don't you know I don't I pay much less than my expect colleagues. I'm sure, and I, it wouldn't occur to me look up what is the Senegalese minimum wage and should I be providing that. She again felt that this this was a personal thing. This wasn't a work thing or a human rights thing, right? That these these fears were so divorced in her own life and. And this is something we also see more broadly in the aid industry. I mean, there um, the UN has been really um, castigated by Human Rights Watch, for example, for the way that UN employees treat domestic workers, um, including dip the diplomatic immunity that they have, using it to basically traffic <laughs> people from their home countries as domestic workers and avoid consequences when they're caught, right? There, there are lots of examples of development as an industry, meaning that people are in it for various reasons that don't necessarily have to do with adjusting their personal lives to fit the millennial goals or whatever it is, mm -hmm. and thinking re reflexively about how their own actions mm -hmm. are contributing to or working against the goals of the organizations that they're working for. Mm -hmm. So that that the workers that I talk about in the book who do have difficulty wrapping their heads around what they're doing um, are largely from countries that have, especially, I mean, I talk a lot, I am American and I talk to a lot of American aid workers and I think they referred a lot to racial politics in the United States being what made them very uncomfortable about the dynamics in their homes. So not necessarily international dynamics of mm -hmm. global hierarchies of race and power, but really their own home context and their discomfort in the optics of being a white person with a black servant, right? <laughs> because of the U.S.'s history of racialized domestic work and um, both slavery, obviously, and then even, you know, much more recently, the they referred sometimes to the these dynamics as being part of what fueled their discomfort and their um, and their weird behavior around this. Yes. In fact, one woman said to me too, a woman who worked for the a consultant for the UN was saying, "When I worked in the Middle East, I didn't think about it as much, mm -hmm. but you know, here, maybe because it's black and white, yes, right, it made me feel much more uncomfortable." Mm -hmm. had, they've seen depictions in, in literature and in fiction and film of bad racist yes. U.S. bosses of Black domestic workers, right? So that's a dynamic that immediately they can picture the bad mm -hmm. optics of it. And, um, and it adds this other layer of racial discomfort to yes. these class dynamics that maybe don't bother them when there's then they're less well that's 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 really uh interesting because you know like you know just the black white dynamic plays more than the black than the white brown dynamic or the brown brown dynamic it's just you know or you know it, it or the you know it's just it's just fascinating to me and I, I and i did read the the case of this this lady who works for the iom and uh you know and, and has no sort of um, you know, recognition of the fact and, and uh, you know, the difference between that people make between their personal lives and their 
professional lives is, is very much, you know, the, the bread and butter of what I do as well, which is basically kind of, you know, because unpaid care work becomes kind of at almost like a private, or this is what happens within the household, you know, mm -hmm. not realizing that there are sort of, you know, negotiations between, you know, who does what and, you know, the, the, these gender roles are so sticky. Um, right. And I just wanted to uh, really come to come to that a little bit, a bit, uh, you know, a little bit more in terms of, of, of gender and you uh, in a spe specifically because you have talked about expat workers who um, you know who are themselves uh, uh, there because they are uh, they've been employed or, or uh, transferred to uh, Senegal as as their country for three years uh, but you've also talked about their spouses right mm. And people who follow, and then they, you know, they don't get the perks of the of the big aid industry, but they obviously get uh, some sort of uh, work, uh, whether it's in the development sector or whether it's in their area of work. And uh, I also interestingly read about um, the fact that, of course, most of these, unless they were single men, uh, I, 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 you know, it struck me while while reading your book that most of these. Uh, you know, if they were in heterosexual relationships, it was the woman who, uh, whether she was the expat worker or the spouse, it didn't matter, but it was the woman who uh, interacted with the staff, uh, you know, uh, made sure that the, the maid and the cleaner and the, you know, and the driver and the, you know, whatever. So I was just wondering whether uh, there was a difference uh, in the behavior of those women who were directly engaged in in these development sector jobs and those women who were spouses of um of the aid sector workers was there a difference between these two different types of women employers it's a really interesting question and you know i only interviewed people who were aid workers i didn't um whether they were men or women i did interview men as well um mm -hmm. the the cases that I'm thinking of in answering your question is there were several cases of um, aid workers who had married African citizens, uh -huh. right? And both um, white men who had married um, African women and also African men yeah. who had married white development females. And in those cases, um, it was still the women, despite you know, there was no shorthand, well, you're from neighboring Mali, maybe you know how best to communicate with the domestic worker. It was still the women domestic workers who are, who are um, giving those, those, you know, who are having that relationship. The only ex examples I can think of where the husband was the main point of contact with the domestic worker was when there was a language barrier between the spouse, between the wife and the domestic worker. So if the husband spoke better French, uh -huh. um, then maybe that would be, but not, but not in every case. And and again, in these cases where I knew of women who had married francophone African men, it was still the women with their their less fluent French who were who were doing that. Yeah, I mean, your question is such an important one too because it, when thinking about um, these dynamics, including the IOM worker who um, who. Was Senegalese and who was, you know, didn't think that what she did with her maid was relevant to any of her work. Again, I think what the connection is across these spaces is that we have all these systems that don't value care work as real work and don't account for it in any way. So jobs that assume that you can have someone else doing all the domestic work, all the care labor that everyone's lives involves, right? Um, that that people are in a real pinch and there doesn't then they make use of this labor reserve mm -hmm. because they need to, right? And because they're not given um, automatically mm. this this kind of labor, or it's not accounted for in any other way, including by their by you know men, right? So mm -hmm. a lot of these working women, um, including the domestic working women, the domestic workers who had other people caring for their children, mm. right? Um, or had to arrange care for their own families in their absence when they were doing this work, right? They're all in this, they're sharing this same conundrum of a society that doesn't value this work, doesn't compensate this work, and assumes that it's women's work. Absolutely. And and so that that is a really, and un, unfortunately, instead of building solidarity across mm -hmm. women, 
that they're all in the same conundrum. It builds these relations of power across class lines um, that that puts them against each other and their interests against one another in certain ways. Absolutely, and I think that is that is one of the main issues about about you know and why why specifically paid domestic work and working with paid domestic work work in our situation when we found in in our project is that it's so difficult because it's not just that they don't have one employer it's because you know it's it's kind of like almost like pitting women against women so whose interests are are more um, real or more. Um, valid uh, or important um, becomes becomes this, this sort of uh, real tussle, and uh, you know, and this 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 you know, and and it has been recognized, especially the global uh, care chain, you know, especially when, for example, Filipino workers or other workers from the global south migrate to other countries, right. uh, and then what do they do? Uh, you know, what what care arrangements they make, and right. again, it's also very interesting that despite this care chain, it's always women. It's always women, you know, whether they are grandmothers or sisters, daughters, teenage daughters, daughters yeah. you know, it's it's the it's it's the the the, the females in, in 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 and around the family or the community that pick up this this work. And and like you say, you know, like um, care work is is completely um, undervalued. Um, but I Which is also, really oh sorry, can I just say too that it's really interesting because the so many of the aid workers that I talked to who worked for state agencies like USAID or the you know Commonwealth Office, they um, or the UN or big you know big organizations, Catholic Relief Services, they had security guards that were they had an agency of security guards that were hired by the employer mm. that set the rates and the working conditions with the contract that they had the global contract that they had with this local security provider USAID would set the conditions right so USAID or the US embassy would negotiate with this mm. thing and set the same conditions the the aid workers themselves had no say over over what the conditions or hours or anything they were rotated through um often this caused annoyance to the aid workers themselves because they got attached to certain guards who were then rotated mm. out or they had a guard they didn't like but usually they could get them fired or moved if they didn't like them. But but what this dynamic meant was that they didn't have to themselves decide what is this labor worth, mm. right? And so it, imagine if domestic workers were also treated in this way where aid agencies themselves would set what a living wage is yeah. for domestic work and this would circle through and it wouldn't be these this individualized, easily exploitable or, you know, um, confusing and troubling kind of dynamic. I'm not sure the conditions would be better. Certainly these security guards make nothing. I mean, they make really low wages. Um, the agency skims a lot of the budget off the top to mm-hmm. keep the agency going. So I'm not sure that actually each individual domestic worker would have better conditions if this happened, but isn't it interesting that no one ever would think to do that, right? That this wouldn't be, because this is seen as an intimate job, that it's something that is against private you know, the security of the family is something that maybe the employer would take care of, but the the clean laundry is not seen to be the <laughs> employer's business, right? Even though it is, as we know, reproductive labor that re- allows the workforce to continue working. So it absolutely could be counted, but it isn't. And I think because it's feminized labor, mm-hmm. right? The security guards are all men. You are listening to an episode of the IDS Between the Lines podcast, brought to you by the Institute of Development Studies. But... I'm still a little bit kind of like I'm, I, I just want to dig a little bit deeper into into this difference of whether the help was male or female. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I'm assuming that even the um, the drivers and the gardeners uh, were managed by the women in in the in these households, or was that a male, more like a the the man would in the house would. Uh, would kind of like reach out to the to the drivers and the and the uh, security guards. I mean, what was the you know? Because because you do mention somewhere that you know like it, it was about uh, you know women who were kind of saying okay that, you know I don't like the the way the security guard is or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I'm just wondering whether that that you know the fact that the the help was male or female did mm-hmm. that change anything about the dynamics of the aid workers in terms of both who managed these people but also 
how and 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 again the the guilt the uh, the sort of you know boundary uh, nature of this or or you know or would would there be kind of advertisements for uh, you know you said like you know there were advertisements for gardener um, mm -hmm. you know etc so how did that you know manifest itself in these in these sort of complex relationships such a great question. It's something I haven't thought a lot about. So I'm, I'm mentally going through these the, the actual cases and thinking about how that worked out. I think for the most part, I think with the drivers, when it was about getting the kids to school and setting schedules, it was often the women who were interacting with the drivers because um, you know the mental load of who goes where, when often fell to the women in the household. Um, this one has horseback riding lessons on Thursdays and needs to be taken there and mm -hmm. things like that. Um, and for the gardeners as well, I think it was mostly the women who were interacting with the gardeners, even when they were the primary worker in the house, but not always. I think I can think of examples of husbands who had particular feelings about flowers and hedges who were um, <laughs> more likely to be interacting with the gardener. So that was more mixed, I would say. And the gardener, you know, I think in some ways I, I, both, I um, package it in with domestic labor and it is in some ways, but I think you're right because it's a, outside the house, there are kind of different, less intimate negotiations and relationships. In fact, some of them, um, some people didn't rarely ever saw the gardener because they were there when they were at work. And, you know, there wasn't a lot of overlap or handing over of the, we'll wait mm -hmm. till you get home to leave the way there would be with a domestic worker or a mm -hmm. nanny, for example. Mm -hmm. um, I knew in a couple of cases where the um, women of the household used the maid or the nanny as a go-between with the security guards and the, um, and the gardeners, you know, here's, can you pay them? And can you tell them we don't like the way that they're falling oh. asleep <laughs> during the day? Or can you tell them not to put their dirty shoes, right. you know? Um, and partly that was a language barrier, but I think it was also a kind of um, awkwardness around being the commanding woman of the household mm. um, with men in positions of, you know, of subordination. I don't know. I think that, I think that probably played a role as well. Yeah, and that's so interesting. And I and I and I read and I I thought of this as well that you know that the housekeeper as a go between almost as if she was the one who had much more power, you mm -hmm. know, kind of like you know, and and could communicate as the voice of the household. Yeah, yeah, could communicate this voice of the household to 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 these uh, people who were ostensibly outside the boundaries, the intimate boundaries of the of of the household, and and it's. And often policing the household as well. And, um, you know, right. a lot of domestic workers, the ma maids and nannies felt they were responsible for making sure that nothing was stolen by mm. an outside member of this household. So like a, a security guard or a gardener, they would report on them. They would watch them with, you know, very closely and, um, which is a funny dynamic if you think of them providing security in the household from the security guard who's guarding the household. But but really they saw it, I think, and as I say in the book, I think rightly because they understood that if something goes missing, they're the first ones suspected, okay. right? So this was a self-preservation thing as much as it was some kind of loyalty to the household or mm -hmm. or um, understanding of duty. But they um, they were always watching the behavior of these other household employees um, and quick to report on bad behavior absolutely absolutely yeah. um uh, and you know like uh, coming a little bit to the to these to these house uh, keepers and uh, and maids and, and nannies it's very interesting that you know uh, also literature talks about how um uh, you know the, the these people are the closest to uh to the family but i wonder you know like but there is also the sense of loyalty uh, to a particular family or, you know, or to each family that they associate with. There must be so much emotional labor to kind of like, you know, really think about, you know, okay, so this child is, you know, their needs are different from this other child's needs and, you know, and, and, and that sort of thing. So how, how do the house workers, um, you know, cope with this sort of emotional labor as well? Yeah. Yeah, it, I found that very interesting too. Obviously, since again, I was my roommate was a domestic worker for for and a nanny for um, for a series of families over the years that we um, lived together. But then, you know, before and after as well. The I mean, 
as you say, with children, it takes an enormous emotional toll, especially when you are the close, one of the closest adults to them for years of their formative years, and then they move and you never really hear from them again. Mm-hmm. Um, I've saw that repeat over and over again. And domestic workers would talk to me about that too. And, and um, how you have to learn in some ways to, to not get too attached. But I think it was very hard with children not to get too attached because I think it's so natural in some ways to, to affect <laughs> to a child. Um, and learning, you know, a new job was, there was a long period of awkwardness in learning a new household, right? Every household had their own things. And what, what um, lots of domestic workers talked about having to guess mm. about what they were doing wrong or right, because they felt, especially with um, American bosses or um, not French, but American and maybe um, English as well, that they wouldn't be told directly that something they were doing was not the the way they it was wanted done, right? And so they would find out later, or there was a lot of confusion and um, difficulties in communicating, not because of language usually, but because of the awkwardness of this intimacy of saying, we don't fold our socks like that, right? But not wanting to be too demanding, right? So there was a lot of different um, ways of having to figure out what the boundaries are. And, you know, one of the women that I talked to who had had a long history of being employed by lots of different families and having it not work out and having been fired and then rehired and all these kinds of things. I mean, she talked with about certain employers with evident love and um, tenderness and fondness and others with disdain <laughs> or or at least kind of you know derision right so so obviously you're going to have different relationships with different families and when um i think it really depended on the the time of life of the domestic worker as well i think domestic workers who had their own children mm-hmm. and their own families um that they were also you know, raising at the same time, there was maybe it was easier to have emotional boundaries Mm. that this is my workplace and that is my home. But I think for especially younger workers um, or um, domestic workers who weren't mothers or who are at grandmothering age, I think that was harder um, in some ways. But I think the, the hope of migration which is something I talk about in the book too, that a lot of these domestic workers are hopeful that being the domestic worker of an expat family could lead to international migration Mm -hmm. with the family once the the time period of their stay in Senegal is over. That hope and having um, that hope dashed is another part of the heartbreak of the when a family leaves, because you have to start all over again. You have to get used to a new household. You have to mm-hmm. hope that you good bosses, not bad bosses. You have to hope that you have another next job to follow. I mean, all of that was a source of great deal of anxiety mm-hmm. and um, malaise for, for these domestic workers after the two or three years that they'd mm-hmm. invested in one family was over. It felt, mm-hmm. again, like starting back at zero and um, and I think was very exhausting. Of course, of course, and that's exactly, and, 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 you know, the discourse of family, you know, like, you know, oh, they're part of our family, and then, but they're not, because you don't leave, like you say in the book, rightly, you know, they don't, you don't leave family members behind, right. uh, you know, and, uh, but I think this, this trope of family has been used, uh, you know, so many times, and, and even in, even in, in, uh, you know, when, when upper middle class and middle class people who employ uh, local domestic workers, I mean, you mm-hmm. know, uh, I come from from India, and that's you know that's a situation where most people uh, who can afford uh, a, a maid will have a maid, uh, you know. Uh, but also, uh, you know, the, and then this whole thing about like they are like family, and we treat them like family members. But of course, you don't because you know they they're not allowed to sometimes drink from the same cup or eat in the same plate or. You know, also, family is not necessarily treated very well by other family members, right? In some ways, they're the people we can treat the worst because we know that they're a family and there's not, you know, so in some ways, that's not a good barometer for for respect or dignity um, 
or, or, you know, I, we exploit our family members all the time, right? Yeah, but, but I think in this, in this situation, imagine the, re the relationship of exploitation becomes even worse because, you know, you're couching it, uh, you know, you're kind of like hiding it, uh, that exploitation by saying, well, you know, they're family and then, you know, we're not going to exploit them because, you know, we treat them well and this sort of kind of like self, uh, you know, aggrandizement or whatever it's called like you know it's right. just this this idea of of the fact that you are doing good because you're a good employer because you know you treat someone like family uh, but it, also it's that, that the, it's very problematic because it also presumes that they are your family and they're yeah. doing it because of love or out of yeah. duty or not as a paid employee who's doing it yeah. for wages right so it That's kind it. of obscures the the motivations of the domestic worker too and then can 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 exploit that as well yeah yeah exactly and you know you're like oh you know your family can you not stay for an extra hour without you know pay etc it is a it's a big right. job. This, this happens exactly the same dynamic happens even in local uh you know domestic work so but so then that's that's not you know so so different i think what what, what is different in 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 aid workers uh is is the language that they they kind of like they this whole what we started with in this podcast which is this whole idea of a disconnect between uh what they do uh, as they're part of their jobs part of their professional lives and then what they do in their personal lives and there's this this sort of kind of almost disconnect and uh you know two spheres of fear on your left hand not really talking to the right hand and it's just you know, it, it fuddles my my brain a bit, but I mean, I just wanted to um, uh, sort of, you know, like uh, take us towards the end of this to kind of think about, uh, so then if we know that these are the dynamics mm -hmm. and that, you know, domestic workers everywhere, uh, whether they're employed by, uh, you know, locals or uh, by, um, by expats, it is a very feminized space and right. it is because of that feminized space that there is so much exploitation and that care is not valued and not recognized then what is it that you would suggest are the policy implications for this uh you know for, for this area of work on 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 care really yeah, well, I, I think so. I'll answer about the development industry specifically first, which is and I think a great opportunity, right? the bread and butter of these development organizations are their missions and their values. And if gender and development is one such value or gender equity or all these kinds of lofty sounding goals, then they can put into place within mm. their organization the mm. kinds of tenants or standards, mm. even codes of conduct that aren't binding mm. would be there. Right now, there's almost nothing, almost no organization that works in development has ever put any kind of formal, even just code of conduct. And I've looked, right? You know, I've I've searched, I've asked, I've I've begged, and I can't find any any organization that has ever thought about this as being connected to the missions and the values of the organization. And that is shocking, right? And that is kind of an, an easy fix. Yeah. I would think that it wouldn't take that much to get a task force together and come up with this. And, you know, the employees are really hungry for it too. Mm -hmm. the, the aid worker employees that I talked to were asking me, do, do you think that's enough what I pay? Or is this, am I supposed to give the 13th month at the end of the year? They would love to have some clarity around this. Most of them are earnestly wanting to do a fair thing, mm -hmm. right? And the right thing. And there's a lot of confusion about what that is. Mm -hmm. And so organizations themselves, especially aid organizations that are ostensibly working for equity and um, well-being, right, could could themselves set standards, um, even, again, non-binding, yeah. just, just suggestions. Yeah. Um, and that would be a big start. And then more broadly, I mean, the, there's so much work going on, on within rights organizations, the UN, et cetera, about domestic work as labor. Mm -hmm. And they could be thought leaders. Mm -hmm right, in pushing for policy in all these countries. But again, part of the reason that they aren't is because privately, they depend on this domestic labor themselves, yeah. even, yeah. and on dysregulation of it. The fact that it's unregulated yeah. means that they can exploit it in mm -hmm. ways that make it feasible to unaffordable um, to sustain their lifestyles. So again, I think there has to be some real soul searching among policymakers too. I, we've seen some 
Um, in the US, there have been some um, propositions and some bills in California and some other states to um, for a domestic workers bill of rights. Mm -hmm. And um, and that is an important aspect of this, but also education of domestic workers mm -hmm. as a sector that they do have rights and who to go to and how to report and some guarantee of actual following up on those reports would 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 go very far. So I'm not really sure um, in terms of who where what policy level these should be set at? Should it be at um, local levels? Should it be you know through an organization of domestic workers? Certainly, there are places that are trying to do that, but it, it remains very difficult because these jobs are seen as private because they're in the home yeah. because it's hard to get observers in to see what the actual conditions are, and because the power disparities are so big between employer and employee. Yeah. So. Um, but I think a really good place to start would be these organizations. And these organizations could model that for non-development organizations, for corporations, for, um, for um, governments, right? Yeah. Shouldn't foreign office have rules and you know, procedures for how diplomats employ this labor? They don't, right? Yeah. And, and that's shocking. <laughs> and and um, again, and totally not shocking because again, it, it is another example of how this kind of work is invisible to policymakers and um, and how it gets so easily hidden. Yes, exactly. Diana, thank you so much for your for your time. And I think your you know your 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 last words ring very true in terms of how how invisible care work generally is to uh, policymakers and to to the larger economy. It's kind of like mm -hmm. as if as if they don't exist. And I think there is a specific element of uh, feminization and gender dynamics here, uh, where uh, you know, in terms of why it is um, it, it is invisible, and uh, you know, uh, we've uh, we, we've had uh, research on kind of like how to visibilize this. Um, mm -hmm. But also uh, the interesting thing is that we need to also probably think much harder in terms of the gender dynamics themselves within the aid workers in terms of why is it a woman to woman dynamic always? Why is it, you know, uh, you know, why is why is this just such a kind of like, oh, you know, the woman will think, you know, all of the thinking process and the organizational, you know, so, so we should probably just call ourselves uh, home managers and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and, and probably get paid for the for the job rather than you know do this but i think you know um you've really uh highlighted the, the the extraction of care and how that happens in a transnational um setting in a, in a development setting which is supposed to help so it's been it's been really good to talk to you uh, are there any uh final things that you'd like to say before we close thank you very much for having me it was a delight to talk to you about the book and um i'm just very excited that I think one of the key ways to pull this work out of the shadows is conversations like this and research like the kind that you do as well. And to the more that we talk about it, the more that it is considered a valid topic of conversation and research and inquiry, the more hopefully we can try to upset some of the dynamics that are perpetuating. Exactly. Well, great. Thank you so much for your, Thank you. your time. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and share to help us spread the word. Do you have a feature that you'd like to appear in a future episode? Then get in touch on email at betweenthelines at ids.ac.uk.